Today's guest helps companies better understand and manage their risks from fraud. Our guest has an impressive resume that includes an array of experience from designing and implementing the initial global anti-fraud program from an organization with over 165,000 employees, pioneering the first comprehensive microfinance fraud risk management program, serving as an adjunct professor, and more. I'd like to welcome the founder and CEO of Fraud Doctor LLC, Alexis C. Bell. Hi, Alexis. It's great to have you on today. Thank you for having me here today, Michelle, to talk about this really important topic. Great. Let us take a few minutes, and can you tell our audience your story and a little bit about your background? Sure. I started my forensic career in public accounting as a forensic accountant, where I was part of a team that conducted fraud investigations into some of the largest cases in the country. You can think of these as the ones that eventually hit the news. Later, I was recruited by a European public conglomerate to build their global anti-fraud program. It was one of the first publicly traded companies to have an in-house program to manage their risk for fraud. This was my first introduction to working internationally in what I would call vacation destination countries. After that, I was again recruited to build an in-house fraud risk management program but this time it was for a large NGO based in Washington, D.C. that had operations in 22 countries, either actively at war or in recent post-conflict developing economies. And this kind of program had never been done before. It posed unique challenges. It made me completely rethink how I had to help the organization manage its risk. And in this context, risk had a whole new meaning. Well, that's certainly um, a lot of experience and uh, problem solving that requires from your side. That's very exciting. Um, tell us how Fraud Doctor came into existence. I founded my company because I wanted to help people working inside organizations better understand how to manage their risk for fraud. My superpower is the ability to take extremely complex topics, break them down into their smallest parts, study them, and really being able to understand not only as their single, smaller parts, but how they fit together as a whole and interact with each other. I've been taught at an early age that we must share our knowledge with others, otherwise our lessons get lost on us. That's great advice. And what's one thing you wish you had known when you first started your career? <laughs> I wish I had given myself permission to schedule time for fun. Mm. Um, early in my career, while I was just learning my craft, I spent all of my free time studying, learning every aspect I could about investigating allegations of fraud. I remember one evening when a new partner joined our firm and he came into the leadership of the forensic team. That night, when the team went out for dinner, he asked each of us to say what we did for fun. When it was my turn to answer, I said, I build databases of fraud research, investigative data analytics testing, <laughs> forensic interviewing techniques, and so on. And, you know, he looked at me a little funny, and he said, no, what do you do for fun? Like, I didn't understand the word. And I answered, that's what I do for fun. So, of course, he and the rest of the team laughed at me, but, but it was true. So I wish I would have had actual fun, like outdoor activities, travel for fun, going to concerts, gardening, painting. 
it would be many years before I picked up painting again. And there's so much to learn before you can get to a place where you can actually call yourself an expert and be able to garner the respect of the leaders in this field. It's a marathon, not a sprint. That's so interesting. Yes, life balance is always challenging, I think, for people, especially with someone like you that is very career-driven and has made strides in their industry that they work in. So why do you think the fraud investigation sphere is still male-dominant? And what can women do to change that? Mm. As a female in this industry, the times when I was the first woman to do something felt like an accomplishment Mm. to me. However, there were times when I was the first person to do something in the history of the world, and those accomplishments are the ones that I'm most proud of. I've spent my career creating structure to areas where there was none, or taking on cases that were the first of its kind, or traveling to places no one else would dare go to. What I've learned is that when I can show other people that it's possible, those mental barriers that they experienced before simply fall away. So, for example, the first time that I worked in Afghanistan, I chose people for the team that were from neighboring countries because they understood the culture and they spoke the language. However, it was still an active war zone, so they were afraid. And I told them that I would be the only one to go around the country and that I would take the local team with me for that. They could stay in Kabul and work from the capital. And that seemed to calm their fears. But what surprised me was that near the end of the fraud risk assessment and then subsequent investigations that I tripped over, they all told me that the next time they would travel around the country with me. And when I asked why, They told me it was because they saw an American female who did not speak the language actually survive. And it made them not only believe that they could do it too, but that they wanted to. And another thing that comes to mind is this. When my youngest daughter was five years old, we were talking one evening on the patio. And looking up at the stars, I asked her if she would rather be the first or second person to do something. And I wanted to know if she saw herself more as a leader or a follower. And she thought about it for a minute, and then she nodded her head in certainty, and she said, second. Now, since I find it difficult to follow, even on the dance floor, I was so surprised by her answer. I asked her, really? Why is that? She leaned forward in her chair, and she said, well, it's simple, really. If someone goes before me, then I can watch them, I can see what they do, and then I can come right behind them, and I can do it better. So... It doesn't matter if you're first or you're second or you're 10th. Be a role model for the rest and help them along the way. That's definitely good advice and so (laughs) deep in thought for a five-year-old especially to think that way and so (laughs) inspirational to hear um, someone, you know, go into a war zone country and do fraud investigation type of work and inspire others to do the same. And so that's uh, really great to hear. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, digital data, databases. You know, what are the challenges of dealing with digital data when it comes to fraud investigation? Hmm. There, there are actually quite a few. <laughs> um, I can, let me see if I can narrow it down for you. So one of the challenges is that some investigators believe that data analytics equals evidence of fraud. Mm-hmm. And that's actually not true at all. 
Rather, data analytics provide a direction of inquiry that points you to where you need to go for who to talk to, what questions to ask them, additional data to analyze, tests to run, documents to review, all to be evaluated, which can potentially end up being evidence. And I think something else that comes to, to mind is how to properly document every file in terms of evidence logging. I think it's easy for us to understand how to log evidence when you have a, a physical item like a, a computer hard drive or a cell phone, but it's not so easy to conceptually understand how to log digital files. Without a clearly defined system in place for this process, key evidence can be misplaced or lost, and that is something that we need to avoid at all costs. Something I see new investigators attempt is only analyzing one data set at a time. And you have to be able to show them what is possible when you combine multiple data sets for a much more robust view of the data by topic. I think um, an example of this would be employee data. If you combine payroll data with other human resources data like emergency contacts, mm. vacation days taken, role, system access logs, physical building access laws, expense reports and authorizations, the vendor master list, key employees for those vendors, and conflict of interest disclosures, you start to get a much clearer picture of their activities. Maybe their emergency contact is a spouse that also owns a company that happens to be a vendor, but that was not disclosed. Understanding this would be really helpful for corruption cases. And I, I would offer one last one. Um, another challenge is that it takes time to truly understand the data if you're unfamiliar with the system. Mm. So one way I have addressed this in the past was to hire a programmer that was part of the original build for the sister system, but no longer an employee. So I would hire them on a contract basis, or sometimes um, if they were in an in-house role, then I would borrow them for the duration of the investigation. And being an expert in the system always meant that they identified issues that we didn't even see at all. So make sure you have people on the team that are system experts or bring them onto the team for that case. That's a great strategy, actually, because uh, you're right. They do need to have an understanding of the system. And I could hear the excitement in your voice when you start talking <laughs> about those databases integration. So that's fun. And what is the one thing you'd want to change about the fraud investigation industry if you had all the resources in the world? Hmm. I, th I think in a perfect world, all of the investigators would be working together for the greater good. So we would be able to have line of sight into concurrent cases between jurisdictions if those subjects had been investigated before. What work had been completed on those cases? What was the resolution of those cases? Did they move forward with prosecution? And if not, why not? Organized crime shares information, and they benefit from that. From them... Information flow does not stop at geographic borders. Imagine what we could accomplish if all of the investigators were working together for the greater good. And I would add one more thing on my perfect list of you know, <laughs> the world running. Um, I would say I wish that all investigators would have access to the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. They'd have the education, the time, the tools, and the team that they need to be successful. That's some good insight. I know a lot of people always, I know there's so many hoops to jump through when you have to cross jurisdictions and countries. And and I think you're right. If people could share and kind of centralize the data and help each other out, 
um, you can get through those cases a little bit more um, quickly and with more depth. I think. Mm-hmm. And do you think there is a way to reduce the time required to conduct a fraud investigation? Hmm, I think for complex international cases, we have over 400 steps in our project plan. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, each step is important, and you can't, you can't actually skip steps during an investigation. But that said, um, there are ways to reduce the amount of time a case takes. Um, you could probably do three things. Uh, put more people on the team, limit the scope of the investigation if that's appropriate, or to work more effectively by using tools. So an example of that would be if you're conducting data quality assessment, it's required for all key fields in each data set before you even begin analyzing that data. Otherwise, any results that you get are meaningless. In the early days, that process was heavily manual, and it would take quite a few hours to complete. In fact, most teams are still doing this manually today, but now we utilize tools to automate the data quality assessment. Understood. And um, how do you conduct a fraud investigation? What's your way of kind of um, the steps that you take? (laughs) Um, I mentioned the 400 steps, um, but there's a lot that goes into that. So I think just in general, there are many different aspects of conducting a fraud investigation. Mm -hmm. You have to understand project management, Mm -hmm. accounting, data analytics Mm -hmm. for fraud, forensic interviewing, rules of evidence, and many other sciences to make you more effective at your job, like psychology, neuro-linguistic programming, which is the study of how people process information, mathematics, such as statistics and Benford's Law. Then there's the impact of culture, and really the list continues on. (laughs) I think it takes decades to understand each of these moving parts and how they interact with each other. If I were to offer two pieces of advice, it would be this. First, Never stop learning. You never know what simple thing you learned before will become that piece of the puzzle that cracks today's case wide open. And second, treat every single case as if it were going to be presented in court. Mm -hmm. Fraud is a crime. At the beginning of a case, you have absolutely no idea. It might start out very simple, but it could end up being the biggest case of your career. You you never know. You're right. And how do you think um, technology can help? investigators? Technology can help investigators with both expertise and efficiency. For example, it would take an investigator 20 or more years to be able to have the expertise they would need to analyze data for the risk of financial statement fraud. Not every investigator has 20 years under their belt, and not every team has access to an expert in this area. In fact, there are very few of us, and we can't be on every single team. Mm -hmm. So even if you are an expert, it would take me sometimes an entire week to analyze just one company. That's why we decided that it was time now to automate that analysis. We wanted to create tech to take the experience that is in my head and automate the process where you can analyze an entire country's publicly traded companies in seconds. Imagine what it would be like if you were an investigator and you could have risk scores by fraud scheme in front of you. Wow. With that information, you have what you need for your direction of inquiry. You know exactly where you need to focus based on risk. Mm -hmm. It's like taking an ocean of data and saying, here, look in this bucket. That's right. And um, have you 
seen um, the news on the Pandora Papers. It's tied to alleged money laundering um, with, you know, political figures, um, you know, pop culture figures. What role could accountants and investigators have in limiting future occurrences? Um, I think I think there's two things to consider here. You have to keep current in your training and be on the lookout for new trends and new schemes. It is interesting because a lot of the schemes people think of as new are actually just a new flavor of an old existing fraud scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, my partner, Paul Dunlop, would tell you that ransomware and cybercrime is actually just a new take on a very old corruption fraud scheme called extortion. <laughs> You know, yeah. understanding this means that we can take our existing knowledge about how to investigate extortion cases, move that forward into something that is widely considered as being new. Mm. And that means that you're already halfway there and you didn't even realize it. Mm. And I think that the other thing is you need the ability to question the information that you're given. Most analysis, and I mean even the most complex analysis, has an underlying assumption that the data that they're analyzing is true inaccurate. Well, what if that's not the case? We need forensic accountants and investigators to question that assumption. What gets in the way of that are two things. One, in this vast ocean of data, where do you start? And the answers are there. You just have to look. And two, not all investigators know where to look or what to look for. Mm. That's interesting. And, um, in the fraud investigation sphere, you know, finding hidden assets or tax fraud and embezzlement are some of the most sought after topics. What do you think is the biggest challenge? The most challenging category fraud is actually financial statement fraud. And one of the reasons is that it's the most elusive category of fraud is because when we compare that to asset misappropriation or corruption, the frequency of cases is much lower. Mm -hmm. However, the impact per instance is much higher in terms of funds. Mm -hmm. When investigators deal with a high volume of asset misappropriation cases every single day, they develop skills in that area. Financial statement fraud is, is not something that you see every single day. Without knowledge of how to investigate this type of fraud, those people are not looking for it. If they're not looking for it, they are not going to be able to find it. And financial statement fraud is far more complex. Mm -hmm. We know that statistically that there are an average of seven people in collusion with one another, where at least one of those people is at minimum the vice president level, because that's the level of access they need to commit that kind of fraud. Mm Next, we know that the motive behind this kind of scheme is much different than the reasons for committing the other types of fraud. Here, the reasons involve attempting to meet analyst projections for publicly traded companies, trying to manipulate earnings to increase management bonuses, Mm. which can be substantial, and so on. Lastly, not only do you need to be an investigator for this kind of fraud, but you need to be a forensic accountant Mm -hmm. in order to understand how people manipulate the books and records of an organization by either increasing income or suppressing expenses and liabilities. And if we're talking about smoothing, then the opposite for all of that is true. (laughs) (laughs) I can see how financial statement fraud can be quite complex because there's so many Mm -hmm. facets to it and really specific background that requires that accounting knowledge, like you said, that is not always uh, logical, but it's something that you um, either have experience in or were taught. So I can Mm -hmm. see that. 
So what advice would you give to other professionals just entering this domain? Mm, priorities like recovering stolen assets and completing cases are important, but never lose sight that there are people mm. in the situations that you're asked to investigate. I've come to realize that investigators may be the only person that can help preserve the dignity mm. of people who find themselves caught up in events. Personally, I've found that Allowing someone to maintain their dignity during the forensic interviewing is the basis of effective interviewing. Allowing people to take accountability and facilitating organizations' recovery from what are often traumatic events. Investigators have a part in the healing that needs to occur by ensuring their interview process has a goal of uncovering truth rather than a confession. And every person, no matter their crime, deserves to be treated with respect. We owe them that. So now that I'm off my soapbox, um, I would also add, <laughs> uh, be prepared to love what you do. Mm. Get really good at your craft. Look for ways that you can help the entire organization as well as helping to elevate our whole industry. And most importantly, don't be afraid to fail because that is how we learn. Be afraid of never trying at all. That is great advice. I like how you mentioned put people, you know, put people first, right? Because we always talk about restitution. We always talk about um, retrieving assets, like you said, all important, but we are all people first. And I think uh, that's important to remember as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Alexis. My pleasure. You've definitely gave us a lot of insights and great valuable advice um, based on your experience and your leadership. And I was so excited to have you on today. Oh, thank you. <laughs>